0: If you would take your Bibles and turn with me to 2 Samuel chapter 7. 2 Samuel chapter 7. I don't know about you, but as I grew up, there were different times where people made different promises to me. And sometimes those promises were fulfilled... And sometimes those promises were not fulfilled. Sometimes those promises were fulfilled and we had to wait a really, really long time, but eventually they were fulfilled. But we respond to promises and the people that made them, uh, in a sense based on whether or not we actually believe those promises will be fulfilled. So uh, most of you um, know that I grew up in Ghana West Africa and and growing up in Ghana we had lots of cool pets uh, at various times I had sheep we had a couple of pigs we had chickens we had uh, guinea fowl uh, we had rabbits and guinea pigs and uh, a monkey and my parents wouldn't let me get a grass cutter uh grass cutter is like a really giant sized rat that can like bite your fingers off. But you could sell those things for a lot of money compared to a lot of the other animals that we raise. So I always pushed for it, but like grass cutters are such uh, nasty creatures that um, the only way that you can really take care of them is to like um, make a concrete base and side for their dwelling. And then the top part can be like metal and wood. But like if you make their cage out of wood, they'll just chew right through it and escape. So they're, they're pretty nasty animals. Um, but we had a monkey um, when, I was, when I was pretty young. We had a, a mapper come um, to, to visit us and he bought a monkey and he was thinking that he was gonna take that monkey back to the States and it'd be a cool pet for him. And then after he bought the monkey, he began to research, you know, what's it gonna look like? What am I gonna have to do to take this monkey? back to the states and as he did that research he decided that he really didn't want to use his finances in that way so what do you do you have the monkey already you leave it for the mks right and we enjoyed that monkey we played with that monkey that monkey had so much personality and uh, really grew up in our house and one very tragic day um, we went to go visit some other missionaries and that other missionaries dog was not used to playing with dogs like are with monkeys like our dogs were used to playing with monkeys and that missionary's dog bit the rib cage and punctured vital organs in our monkeys rib cage and uh, monkey monkey was no more and my parents did what any good parents would do at that time and you know what they said don't worry we will buy you all another monkey right that's that's what like every good parent does uh, whether they want to or not, that's that's what their immediate inclination is. Don't worry, we'll buy another monkey. It's, it's a promise, right? And we expect that promise to be fulfilled. And especially as children, we expect that promise to be fulfilled relatively quickly. Like um, tomorrow, that'd be, that'd be an appropriate time frame for this to happen in. And um, it didn't happen right away. And then... Uh, due to the, the nature of what we did, we had to come back to the States and report to the churches that supported us. And we came back and then we went back to the, the country of Ghana and it didn't happen right away because where we lived, there really wasn't that many monkeys and there, there weren't lions in our backyard either. Um, but one day we are driving in the northern part of the country and as we are driving on this you know, dirt road, there was this guy walking a mature, full-grown monkey on the side of the street, and us kids jumped on it. I mean, the guy wasn't trying to sell his monkey; he just had a monkey, right? We're like, there's a monkey. Buy the monkey. <laughs> and my parents asked this guy, "Would you be willing to sell your monkey?" And he's like, "Sure, for the right price. You know, I'll do anything." And so we bought this monkey, and this monkey um, didn't grow up in our house and wasn't a baby when we got it, and so it never really was as friendly and fun as uh, Katie, our first monkey. Brio was a mean monkey. But we wanted that promise to be fulfilled, and every time we thought about monkeys as we awaited that promise, it led to a response in our, in our hearts as children, right? There's this accusation that mom and dad have not kept their word, right? we don't have our monkey yet. And it affects how we live. What we believed about our parents, whether justified or unjustified, affected how we lived when we thought about monkeys. And what's happening in this text this morning is something very similar. God is coming to King David. And he's making him a promise. And he's saying, I'm going to establish your family as the eternal dynasty for Israel. And how does David respond to that? Does he believe God's promises? Does he go, you can't do that. I mean, how can you establish an eternal dynasty? Like, dynasties might last a thousand years or you know a couple hundred years, but dynasties fall apart. They don't last for forever. Everybody knows that. I'm a king. I've conquered a whole bunch of dynasties. Somebody will at some point topple this dynasty. Or does David say, I believe God. Does he humble himself, worship him, and offer himself as a willing servant of his God? And how should you and I respond to the promises that we have from our God? That's really what the text is seeking to address, is not really how David responded, but how you and I should respond and will respond to the faithfulness and the blessings that God has provided for his children. If you want to take your Bibles, let's read 2 Samuel chapter 7. 2 Samuel (laughs) chapter 7, verse 1. Now it came to pass when the king was dwelling in his house and the Lord had given him rest from all his enemies all around that the king said to Nathan and the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells inside tent curtains. Then Nathan said to the king, Go, do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. But it happened that night that the word of the Lord came to Nathan saying, Go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, would you build a house for me to dwell in? For I have not dwelt in a house since the time that I brought the children of Israel up from Egypt, even to this day. But I have moved about in a tent and in a tabernacle, wherever I have moved about with all the children of Israel, I have, have I ever spoken a word to anyone from the tribes of Israel, whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now therefore, thus says, Thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the sheepfold, from following the sheep to be ruler over my people, over Israel. And I have been with you wherever you have gone, and have cut off all your enemies from before you, and have made you a great name, like the name of the great men who are on the earth. Moreover, I will appoint A place for my people Israel, and will plant them that they may dwell in a place of their own and move no more, nor shall the sons of wickedness oppress them anymore, as previously, since the time that I commanded judges to be over my people Israel, and have caused you to rest from all your enemies. Also, the Lord tells you that He will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled, and you rest with your fathers, I will set up your seed after you and will come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father and he shall be my son. If he commits iniquity, I will chasten him with the rod of men and with the blows of the sons of men. But my mercy shall not depart from him as I took it from Saul. Whom I removed from before you, and your house and your kingdom shall be established forever before you. Your throne shall be established forever. According to all these words and according to all of this vision, so Nathan spoke to David. David's response in verse 18. Then came David, went in and sat before the Lord, and he said, Who am I, O Lord God? And what is my house that you have brought me this far? And yet this was a small thing in your sight, O Lord God. And you also have spoken of your servant's house for a great while to come. Is this the manner of man, O Lord God? Now what more can David say to you? For you, Lord God, know your servants for your word's sake and according to your own heart. You have done all these things to make your servants know them. Therefore, you are great, O Lord God, for there is none like you, nor is there any God beside you, according to all that we have heard with our ears. And who is like your people like Israel and the one nation on the earth whom God went to redeem for himself as a people, to make for himself a name and to do for yourself great and awesome deeds for your land? before your people whom you redeemed for yourself from Egypt, the nations, and their gods. For you have made your people, Israel, your very own people forever, and you, Lord, have become their God. Now, O Lord God, the word which you have spoken concerning your servant and concerning his house, establish it forever. Do as you have said so let your name be magnified forever saying the lord of hosts is the god over israel and let the house of your servant david be established before you for you o lord of hosts god of israel have revealed this to your servant saying i will build you a house therefore your servant has found it in his heart to pray this prayer to you and now o lord god you are god and your words are true And you have promised this goodness to your servant. Now therefore, let it please you to bless the people, the house of your servant, And then it may continue before you forever, for you, O Lord God, have spoken it, and with your blessing, let the house of your servant be blessed forever. Let's go to the Lord in a word of prayer. Father, we do thank you for who you are. We thank you for the fact that you are a good God, that you make promises and that your promises are promises that are kept and that we can trust you and because of your faithfulness and your truthfulness we can live lives that approach you in humbleness approach you in fervent praise and approach you as whole offerings we pray that that would be our desired response and that would be indeed our response as we Go throughout this next week in your name we pray. Amen. I left my clicker. I think over there. All right. I didn't use it for Sunday school, so I didn't think about moving it. All right. A house promised and humble praise. Second Samuel chapter seven. I think the the big idea is the Lord's certain promises call for humble praise, and I think uh, far more than just just what we think of as praise and how we sang this morning is included in this idea of humble praise. It it really deals with our whole life, how we live when we go to work, how we live as we pursue various forms of entertainment, how we go about uh, disciplining and correcting and instructing our children. Humble praise is an all-encompassing idea that flows out of our God is and as David meditates upon this promise that he receives through the vision that Nathan gets his response is this is what I have to do with my whole being and as we reflect upon God's promises that should be our response as well this is this is the request. This is the, the demand that God makes of your life and He makes of my life. That we approach Him humbly as a whole offering of ourselves. We serve Him and we praise Him and thank Him for who He is. The Lord's promises are sure. And I think that's really what the, the text begins by explaining to us in verses 7 all the way, or verse 1 all the way through verse 17 is that the Lord's promises are sure and that he will not change. If you look, um, God provides David with peace and a finished palace. If you remember just earlier in the text, David has God and he has conquered Jerusalem. He's conquered the city that has been a menace in Israel's side for so many years. David has done what all the people in Joshua and all the people in Judges could not do. He's done what Saul could not do. Why? Because he submits to God. And now he has this place and he's working with um, the king of Hiram and he builds this marvelous palace for himself. And he's got all the dream aspects of his dream palace, right? They didn't have movie theaters back then but you know he had a little theater section where people could come and do the theater plays and he had his bay window and He had everything just the way the king wanted it, right? Because if you were to build yourself a mansion in your forever capital city, you would do that too, especially if people are sending you free cedar, right? Okay? He builds the house. He has peace. He's not in wars anymore. And he kind of sets down. And as he sets down and he kind of contemplates what is happening in his kingdom, he decides that... He wants to honor the Lord by building him a temple. Look at verse 2. The king said to Nathan the prophet, See, now I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells inside tent curtains. See, he has a desire to worship God, to honor God, not just in, you know, bringing the ark up into Jerusalem so that it's a prominent place and everybody that comes to Jerusalem knows God is a true monarch of our nation. It's not really David. This is a theocracy, not a monarchy. David's like, you know, when I look at my massive, palatial palace, and I look at where the ark thats you know, the the human demonstration of the fact that we are serving God, not, not me, this doesn't measure up. This is wrong. We should... We should build something that demonstrates publicly in a big way who our God is and the fact that we have a desire to serve him primarily. And he tells his friend Nathan this, and Nathan's like, Oh, that's a a great idea. I'd encourage you to proceed with these plans. Look at verse 3. Then Nathan said to David, Go, do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. Right? God has been with David. God has cared for David. And Nathan looks at this plan and he's like, that is a good plan. David goes to sleep that night. Nathan goes to sleep that night. And what happens? God comes, and the overwhelming message is about his faithfulness, his goodness to David and to David's descendants. Yeah, he's going to tell him no, hold off on the temple. But the overwhelming message isn't no. The overwhelming message is one of blessing and one of God's faithfulness to David. The Lord expresses thankfulness at David's desire. Look at verse 4. But it happened that night that the word of the Lord came to Nathan saying, go and tell my servant, thus says the Lord, Would you build a house for me to dwell in? What's happening here? God is not really in shock because nothing truly shocks God. God knows everything, okay? But he's impressed by the hearts of David and David's desire to honor God. He's like, you want to do that for me? And he moves on, and as he moves on, he begins to point to various aspects of the history. And he says, "I haven't ever dwelt in a house like this since since I redeemed Israel. I've never lived in a house like that. And wherever I've moved, have I ever spoken a word to anyone from the tribes of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people, saying?" Why have you not built me a house of cedar? He's like, this hasn't been a you know historical um, point of uh, friction between me and the people of Israel. I gave them specific instructions on what the tabernacle is supposed to look like, and they followed those. I've never complained about my dwelling place. I've never made a fuss of it. I told them what to do. They did it. He moves on. Whoever, um, why have you not, verse 8, Now therefore, thus shall you say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the sheepfold, from following the sheep, to be a ruler over my people. And what, what's going on here is that the Lord reminds David of his grace in the new king's life. And he's going to zoom in and zoom out really rapidly in various sections of David's life. And the whole idea as he does this is, I have been good to you. He's pointing to his past faithfulness, his past care in David's life. And so the first area that he points to is, you are the pastures, And maybe you like the country. But in the context, it's not like, You know, country living is a good thing compared to being the prince of the nation, right? Gonda, from being in the pastures as a shepherd who's the most lowly of the sons of your father, and now you have the most prominent, well-known position in the land. You are now king. He moves on from there and he says, not only that, but I have been with you. You have experienced God's, Presence. Look at verse 9 And I have been with you Wherever you have gone But not only that God has provided David With victories over his enemies Continuing on in verse 9 And have cut off all your enemies From before you And he's provided him And presented him with a great name One that is like all the great names And have made you a great name Like the name of the great men were on the earth but God's faithfulness in the past hasn't just been something that has been for David, no he moves on and he says my past faithfulness has been evidence to the nation of Israel, I have provided them a place and, and just think how significant that must have been for the nation of Israel Abraham's promise: this will be your land. Isaac's promise, this will be your land. Jacob's promise, this will be your land. Sons are promised, this will be your land. And the implication is that they're supposed to tell their kids, right? So grandkids upon grandkids have been told, this will be your land. This will be your land. And for years, they serve as slaves in a foreign country. And then they finally make it into the country that they're supposed to have. And they've been there for a couple hundred years trying to acquire this place that is supposed to be their permanent dwelling place. And you have the capital city, Jerusalem, that's being a pain. Right? They can't get it. It's part of the promise, they're supposed to have it, but nobody in Judges, nobody in Joshua can get it. And Saul, the first king, doesn't get it either. Now the promise is being fulfilled and it's seen to a greater extent. And he says, I'm going to provide you a place free from external interactions and entanglement in your affairs. This will be your place where you have rest, where you have peace. He moves on and he says, not only that uh, look at verse 10 moreover I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them that they may dwell in a place of their own and, have, uh, and move no more nor shall the sons of wickedness oppress them anymore as previously since the time that I commanded judges to be over my people Israel and have caused you to rest from all your enemies also what is he going to do he's going to provide him a permanent house also, the Lord tells you that he will make you a house. And if you don't understand the imagery, you're sitting there going, um, David doesn't really need a house because he just built one. And if I was king and I was building myself a house, I'd build myself the perfect house the first time. You know, Some of you are like, well, when you build a house, you always look at it afterwards and you're like, I'd change this or that. He'd remodel, okay? He doesn't need a whole other house rebuilt. Isn't he gonna build him a house? Okay? Not a literal physical house that he's gonna sleep in. God is saying, I'm going to establish your kingdom. And it's not gonna be like Saul, who Saul lost the right to have the dynasty that controlled Israel. Your family will always have that right. And there will always be somebody from your house that can sit on that throne. This is a promise that has current implications. Right now, does Israel have a king? Say no. Israel doesn't have a king right now. Just, just in case some of you don't you know know how geographical um, areas of the world have their governments, they have a, they have a prime minister, okay? But there is coming a day when God will fulfill this promise and Jesus Christ will be set up as the king of Israel. Why? Because he is in David's line. This is a promise that is still true and that one day God will bring to fruition. And when he establishes the kingdom in Israel, one of David's sons, Jesus Christ will sit on that throne. While this promise is not currently being lived out in the way that Israel manages their affairs, there is coming a day when God will fulfill that promise. And that is because our God is a God whose promises remain true. Even amidst punishment for great sins, Look at um, verses 12 and following. When your days are fulfilled and you rest with your fathers, I will set up your seed after you who will come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. It's making it very clear that this house isn't really a house. It's talking about something far bigger than a house. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father and he shall be my son if he commits iniquity. And this isn't talking about just you know he he stole a dollar from mommy. Okay, the word that is being used here is being used for serious, grievous, really bad sins. Okay, so even when he commits those really serious bad sins, what does he say? If he commits iniquity, I will chasten him to punish him with the rod of men and with the blows of the sons of men but but my mercy shall not depart from him as I took it from Saul whom I removed from before you and your house and your kingdom shall be established forever before you your throne shall be established forever what's he getting at? God's promises remain true and you know that's that's something that's true today, too. And while you and I are not promised a house, we're not promised a house in any any way that we could use that term, right? You're not promised a physical house, and you are not promised a kingdom in the United States or anywhere else for that matter, right? But God has made promises for his children. I think, first of all, we need to say, What makes one a child of God? What allows me to enter into this blessed state where I receive these promises from God? And how I enter into that state is centered around the message of Christ Jesus. And the message of Christ Jesus and the person of Christ Jesus really can't be separated from one another. So if I talk about the message The good news And I don't talk about Jesus Christ It's not a complete message And if I talk about Jesus Christ as a, as a good person Who gives us good morals But I don't talk about The accompanying message That you and I Were sinners That we stood condemned Before a holy God that we deserved his punishments, that we deserved eternal death and separation from God, then we haven't provided you with the full message. And so there you and I are, as Ephesians chapter 2 so wonderfully describes, that we were dead in our trespasses and sins. One of my college friends says, Is that like zombies? My professor goes, no, you're dead. (laughs) You're dead. There's nothing in you that could possibly earn God's favor. You're separated from God. You're alienated from God. You deserve God's wrath. God is angry. Why? Because you're a dead sinner. And God is just in that age what does God do? He steps into this, that situation. He sends his son into the world to die on the cross on your behalf and my behalf. He lives a perfect, sinless life. And he provides us with the opportunity to become alive. To be able to be st- stand before him being justified. Being declared righteous. Why? Not because of who I am, not because of what I've done, not because of who you are, because of what you've done, but because of who Jesus Christ is, and because I choose to place my faith in his finished work. And that drastically alters my outlook and my actions in this life. And so because of that... Now I, as a believer, am able to enjoy the many spiritual blessings that are described in Scripture. I have been adopted by God the Father. I am now a child of God. I have been redeemed. I have had my sins forgiven. I no longer stand before God as someone who is tainted by sin and unable to approach His presence. Rather, my sins are forgiven, and I do not have to pay the penalty for those sins. I get to enjoy all the mysteries that have now been made known to me. I enjoy the hope of the inheritance with the other saints. I am a co-heir with Christ. And all this is not something that is uncertain, that I could possibly somehow lose. No, all this is sealed by the Holy Spirit. He guarantees that these Blessings, these promises will be mine. You and I have not been promised a house, but we have been made promises as we approach Christ in faith, trusting that His finished work is all that I lean on for my hope of eternal life. How does David respond to His promise? And as we examine David's response to God's promise of a house and God's reminder that I have been faithful in the past, I think it models for you and I how you and I should respond to the promises that we receive when we come to Christ and receive salvation. When we come to Christ and receive the forgiveness of our sins. Believers worship the Lord in humble praise. Look at verse 18. David acknowledges his humble state. It's amazing. David has these promises made known to him in verse 17. And you know, my initial reaction, if I just found out that my kids um, have the potential of always uh, sitting on the throne of Israel, would be like, yes! It's all paid off, right? you don't think so i think so that'd be that'd be kind of how my mind would at least initially begin to react to the news of god's graciousness to him. but how does david respond how does david respond to the promise that is found in god's word through nathan his response is one of humility it's one of humbleness and as you and i meditate on the blessings the benefits that we have received through our relationship with Christ Jesus should also lead to humility. Look, look at verse 18. Then King David went in and sat before the Lord, and he said, Who am I, O Lord God? And what is my house that you have brought me this far? Nope. As I said, my initial reaction would be like, you know, as I meditate upon my my response to Goliath of Gath in chapter 17 and the, the faith that I demonstrated right there, this is actually something that I maybe possibly deserve, right? Or look at how I responded in faith to Saul as he tried to pursue to kill me in, in direct defiance of God's anointing on my life. I mean, I responded really quite well in chapter 24 and 26. 25, I had a little bit of an up and down, but you know... For the most part, this is something that I deserve. Now, we'll we'll skip 27. We won't talk about that. But, I mean, look at 28 and 29. That's not what David does. David humbles himself, and he realizes that this is not something that he deserved. This is not something that he should have received because of anything that's in him. It's because of God's graciousness providing him with these blessings. David humbles himself. And as you and I see God's blessings, whether they be physical or spiritual, it should lead us to humility. It shouldn't build us up full of pride that that causes division in the body of Christ. Rather, it should allow us to humble ourselves and be willing to give up our rights, give up our perceived Um, rights and our perceived things that we deserve instead be willing to give those up in order to pursue and see that Christ is honored, that Christ is worshipped as people see who God is what he's done and how we respond but David's response continues on, it's not just an initial reaction of humility that we see He goes on You have also spoken of your servant's house For a great while to come That's an understatement if you will Right? The promise wasn't for a great while to come The promise was Forever Is this the manner of man The Lord God Is that how you um, Typically uh, Deal with people Now What more can David say you. For you, Lord God, know your servant. David realizes his subservient position. It's interesting, as you read through David's response in verses 18 and following, I think there's at least ten references to the fact that David is a servant. Right? David realizes that these, these blessings, these promises of God does not allow him to just go do Whatever he wants. You know, I mean I've been made king and I've been guaranteed this kingship, and if I sin I'm getting smacked, but somebody from my family will always be king, so I'll just you know, YOLO. You only live once. That's not what David's response is. It's one of humility that leads him to say, I am a servant of God. And I'm gonna seek to live in conformity to your will. Servants don't really get to exert their their desires and their passions very often. That's what David's acknowledging. I am your servant. I am going to seek to serve you, follow your passions, follow your will. As you read through, um, really really quickly, let's let's do that. Um, So in in verse 20 you have, For you, Lord God, know your servants. For your word's sake, and according to your own heart, you have done all these great things to make your servant know them. Therefore you are great, O Lord God. For there is none like you, nor is there any God beside you, according to all that we have heard with our ears. And who is like your people, like Israel, the one nation on the earth, whom God went to redeem for himself as a people, to make himself a name, and to do for yourself great and awesome deeds for your people before you. Your people, whom you redeemed for yourself from Egypt, the nation and their gods. For you have made your people, Israel, your very own people forever, and you, Lord, have become their God. Now, Lord God, the word which you have spoken concerning your servant, concerning his house, establish it forever, and do as you have said. So let your name be magnified forever, saying, The Lord of hosts is the God over Israel, and let the house of your servants David be established before you for you O oh Lord God of hosts God of Israel have revealed this to your servant Saint Allah build you a house therefore your servant has found it in his heart to pray this prayer and now O oh Lord God you are God and your words are true and you have promised this goodness to your servant now therefore let it please you to bless the house of your servant that it may continue before you forever for you O oh Lord God have spoken it and your blessing And with your blessing, let the house of your servant be blessed forever. I kind of walk away from the passage going, I think David thinks that he's supposed to serve God. I think that might be a uh, reasonable understanding from the text, right? I think we could all get there pretty easily. David realizes he is subservient to God. And he has a desire to serve God. God. Why? Because of God's past faithfulness. He humbles himself and he desires to serve. David praises the Lord for his goodness. You see that as he discusses God's past goodness, God's redemption for the nation of Israel out of Egypt. David agrees with God's choice and praises him. David isn't like, you know, I'm not really sure if God's going to do this. It's more of an affirmation. It's not really he's like, you know, you have promised this but I'm going to pray for it just in case we're unclear here. I think David's humbling himself. He's pursuing God's will. God has made his will known. And David is praying in alignment with God's revealed will. David agrees with God's choice and praises him. We must humbly approach the Lord in reverent worship. And that's that's really where it leads David to saying God is worthy of worship how do we live out the truths of 2 Samuel chapter 7 God's promises are certain and some of the well, the, the major promise that we see in 2 Samuel chapter 7 is not currently fully fulfilled Someday, God will come back and he will establish his son, Jesus Christ, to be king over Israel. And we rejoice and we long for the day when we see that and our faith is made sight as we see that happen. But I think that there are implications from David's response to to God's promises that you and I can, can use as we respond to the promises that we have received from God as well. And a lot of the promises that I discussed earlier, if you go to Ephesians chapter 1 verses 3 through 14, you're going to see those promises outlined as he talks about the various members of the Trinity and says, look at the blessings we've received through the Father. Look at the blessings that we received through the Son. Look at the blessings that we've received through the Holy Spirit I think all those blessings and even the blessings that we see God promised to others should lead us to meditate on the Lord's promises and as we meditate it leads us to praise and thankfulness we humble ourselves before the Lord that's David's response you and I did not deserve and could not deserve even now Any of those promises. That is God's immense grace. And that requires that you and I humble ourselves as we meditate upon His promises. We praise the Lord for His blessings. And finally, we offer ourselves as living sacrifices. That's David's big takeaway. Like, gets like ten times. He's like, I'm a servant. I'm a servant. I'm a servant. I'm a servant. Your heart's desire, my heart's desire, as we meditate upon God's faithfulness and goodness in the past and as we go forward should be one of service. Let's go to the Lord in the word of prayer. Father, we do thank you for your faithfulness. We thank you for your goodness. We pray that as we we take time out of our busy schedules today to meditate upon your your faithfulness in David's life, to meditate on your faithfulness in our lives up to this point and the, the promised faithfulness that we have in the future. That you would use that in our hearts to help us to humble ourselves, to help us to praise you, and to help us to seek to serve you. As faithful servants. In your name we pray. Amen.